Well, this summer, as we've been looking at God's Word, we've been in a quest for wisdom. And we've been especially interested in acquiring, as Stuart read from James 3 a little while ago, the wisdom that comes down from above. And we want to silence, at least in our hearts, the wisdom that comes from around us. Uh, As the passage said, the, the earthly, the unspiritual. And we're looking to attain the kind of wisdom that is first pure, and then peaceable, gentle, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And so what we've gone this summer is gone right to the heart of our Bibles, to the Psalms. And today we're in Psalm 112. I listened to a few, uh, about a month ago now, as my wife was explaining to the children in open session that that the shortest book of the Bible, is, or shortest chapter of the Bible, is Psalm 117, and the longest chapter in the Bible is Psalm 119. And right in between Psalm 119 and Psalm 117 is Psalm 118, which is exactly right in the middle of your Bible. So if you open up your Bible, right in the middle, you'll get close to Psalm 112. Just go back a little bit, and that's where we are this morning. Psalm 112 has an interesting twist on wisdom. It actually says that the way to start acquiring wisdom is, is in how we think about God and in how we respond to God. And even in that, there's an odd connection there between obedience and delight. We don't usually think of obedience and delight together. In Psalm 112, we'll see that when God is worshipped rightly and when he is obeyed gladly, Wisdom will be on display. Psalm 112 actually fits together. They're sort of come in a tandem with Psalm 111. Psalm 111 and Psalm 112 have exactly the same number of verses. Uh, in the Hebrew, the first word of each line is, is, goes in the Hebrew alphabet. So if it was in English, the first line would start with A, and the second line would be in the B and C. So that's what it... Both those psalms have that same sort of pattern. And they actually sound a lot alike. They both start exactly the same way, and Psalm 113 does too, with praise the Lord. The main difference, though, is that Psalm 111 is describing God and all his works. Great are the works of the Lord, it says, studied by all who delight in him. While Psalm 112 is describing a godly person and his blessings. One blesses the Lord, looks at his works, The other talks about this righteous man, this righteous person. Blessed is the man who fears the Lord and who greatly delights in his commandments. And so one is about what God has done and the other is what the godly person is like. But there's also a transition between the two. And you see that in the last verse of of Psalm 111. Look at verse 10 of Psalm 111. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All those who practice it have a good understanding. His praise endures forever. So, so there's what we're looking for. We're looking for wisdom. And it says here that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. If someone truly wants wisdom, it all starts by having a healthy fear of the Lord. And then Psalm 112 picks up right there by saying, blessed is the man who fears the Lord. So Psalm 112 really shows us wisdom on display in this person that's presented here, this person who fears the Lord. Show me someone who fears the Lord, and I'll show you 
what wisdom is. That person's life will be a picture of wisdom. It will display wisdom. It will give evidence of wisdom, and it will show itself in a number of ways. And Psalm 112 will show us what that looks like, practically speaking. But it all starts with this idea of the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Someone who regards the Lord rightly will be blessed. He will be in a good place. This, this is where we want to be. We all want God's blessings. We all want God's joy. When it comes down to it, we all want to be happy. We all want to live happy lives. And especially as Christians, we want that happiness that comes from the kind of life that pleases God. And verse 1 actually starts with worship. Praise the Lord. In Hebrew, it's hallelujah. And I think the next part of verse 1 is just a continuation and an extension of that. Blessed is the man who fears the Lord. The, the right attitude, the right demeanor of the wise man is that he has this kind of reverence for God, a, a respect for God. He honors God. He worships God. This is the way of godly wisdom. It, it views God rightly. When we talk about the fear of the Lord, we, we usually mean it that, in that way. And you might have heard this explained by Bible teachers, that the fear of the Lord is not talking about being scared of the Lord. It's talking about this, this reverence, this having this awe of the Lord, respect, honor, worship. And it is that. But we shouldn't leave the notion of actual fear too quickly. That's all part of it, too. Because when we recognize who God is, there should be some degree of trepidation just because of how majestic and powerful, how altogether wonderful God is and how terrifying he actually is. He is God. He is the mighty creator. He is the king. He is the Lord. He is holy. And because humankind is not that, because humankind is unholy, he is also the judge over those that he has created. He is opposed to anything that is unholy. And that should elicit a, a healthy kind of fear. Jesus said, do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. So there is an encouragement here really to not play fast and loose with God. Do not play fast and loose with God. I think there's actually too much of that happening, even sometimes in Christian circles. For instance, young people, let's stop with the OMGs, okay? I know you guys write in acrostics and, and, and in all sorts of hidden language, but don't use that. Now, don't try to explain that away as meaning something else. We all know what it means. Use God's name, definitely use God's name, but use it appropriately and thoughtfully, not haphazardly and thoughtlessly. And don't put up with those who do. Have the courage to say something for them. I'm happy to have you talk to me, but just skip that, use something else. God is not to be trifled with. God is not to be trivialized. God is not to be taken lightly. God is to be taken seriously. James Montgomery Boyce says, God cannot be inconsequential. I like that. There are consequences with how we think about God. God cannot be inconsequential or weightless in our thinking or acting, he says. 
Does your life give evidence that you have a fear of the Lord? Do you take him seriously? Do you honor him? If you can say yes to those questions, would other people be able to affirm what they observe in your life? What do your priorities say to them? Is it evident and obvious that you fear the Lord? Is it obvious in your words? Is it obvious in your Twitter feed? Is it obvious on your Facebook page or in your Instagram gallery? Is it obvious in your conversations? Whether that be the old-fashioned mouth-to-mouth actually talking, audio, you know, there's sounds, or in your digital conversations. Is fear of the Lord evident in your church attendance, in your giving, in your prayer life, in your devotional life? Blessed is the man, blessed is the woman, blessed is the child, blessed is the teen, blessed is the senior who fears the Lord. And it says, blessed is the man who greatly delights in his commandments. Do you obey God gladly? How do you treat the instructions in the Bible? Do you view them as a begrudging duty? Notice that the emphasis here isn't so much on keeping God's commandments, but in delighting, in greatly delighting in his commandments. Now this actually goes right against our human nature, doesn't it? It's hard for us when someone tells us what to do. Unless the position demands it. So your employer can make demands of you. If you want to keep the job, or if you want to get paid for the job, it's in your best interest to do what you're told. But even that can be grudging obedience, can't it? And ultimately self-focused. We're only doing it because we get something out of it. As children grow up, less and less they like getting told what to do. They start to challenge instructions. It can happen in marriages. It can happen in all different areas of life. And it's hard to admit, but that's even true when it comes to our relationship with God. The snake in the garden knew exactly that. It challenged God's wisdom in giving commandments. Did God really say And it knew the woman and the man would be tempted by that. That that would be a point of weakness. And they failed. They wanted to do it their own way, ultimately. They didn't like God telling them what to do. But if anyone has a right in telling someone else to do, surely it is God. He is the one who made us. And because of that, he has the right to tell us what to do. But it goes further than that. It is because God is good that we should greatly delight in his commandments, right? Does that make sense? If you respect and admire someone a lot and, and you get to, work, get to work under them, wouldn't you do anything for that person? If they asked you to get something, you would run to get it. You'd go through the wall for that person. You would take great delight in obeying the commandments of someone you admire, that's what this is saying. If you revere the Lord rightly, if you, then you will gladly obey him. It all comes back again to how you view God. In Psalm 111, after he rehearses all the great works of God, he responds by saying in verse 8, God has commanded his covenant forever. Holy and awesome is his name. A right view of God leads to a joyful and glad obedience towards God's, toward God's commands. 
What does a person look like who fears the Lord and obeys him gladly? Well, that's what the rest of Psalm 112 is about. And it gives us sort of a a portrait of that kind of person from verses 2 right to verse 8, and then a quick comparison of a godly man and a wicked man in verses 9 and 10. So in verses 2 and 3, it talks about this godly man, and it talks about him in terms of his surroundings. Look again at verse 2. Great, uh, sorry, his offspring will be mighty in the land. The generation of the upright will be blessed. Wealth and riches are in his house, and his righteousness endures forever. So the kind of man that fears the Lord and delights in his commandments is influential. Almost automatically. His godliness will be infectious. It affects his offspring. It affects his generation. It affects his house. Now, just a word here. When the Bible is talking, and this is often the case in wisdom literature, um, this is talking in truisms. It's saying that this is generally and largely the way it goes. It doesn't mean that this is a guarantee every single time. And if you have a godly household, your children will automatically turn out to be godly, just like you. But it means that where there's a home that, that breathes a culture of godliness, they put it this way, the, the, the bacteria is airborne. Only this bacteria will positively infect its surroundings. It will, it will make its way around the house. The offspring of this man who fears the Lord will be mighty in the land, it says. That same word that's used there for mighty is actually used of Goliath when it's talking about him as the champion of the Philistines. And so we could say that the offspring of those who fear God will be champions in the land in a godly sense. That godly influence will fan out, it will spread. Wouldn't it be great if our church would produce God-fearing champions in our land? Young people who go out from this place? Some might become missionaries. Some might become evangelists. Some will be doctors, nurses, teachers, homemakers, plumbers, welders, machinists, lawyers, athletes. This is all part of being disciple makers in our homes and in our church, of giving ourselves to fear the Lord and then to delight in his commandments on a personal level, and then as a church being intentional in in showing people, being examples, and then teaching people how to be followers of Christ wherever God places them, in whatever sphere of life they choose, that they would be influential for God. His offspring will be mighty in the land. The generation of the upright will be blessed. And it says in verse 3, wealth and riches are in his house. That just means that godliness brings prosperity. It brings not only generational blessings, but it also brings material blessings. The blessings will be tangible and observable. Proverbs 22.4 says, The reward for humility and fear of the Lord is riches and honor and life. Reward for fear of the Lord is riches and honor and life. Now, this isn't prosperity gospel, health and wealth, name it, claim it kind of thing. 
We find out later that we are blessed so that we can give. It's not give and then you will be blessed. And material blessings can come and go. Job is a good example of that. If you read the beginning of Job only and then the end of Job only, just those two, maybe just chapter 1 and then chapter 42, or I think that's where it ends, then you'll see that he had a great family. He had lots of wealth. But you can't skip the chapters in the middle. Chapter 2, right up to the 38, 39, somewhere in there. He is a God-fearing man. But God allows it to all be taken away. Yet Job still says, as the song that we sang this morning is, is written for, Job still says, blessed be the name of the Lord. But this is just telling us right at the beginning that godliness will need, lead naturally to blessings. Now sometimes we don't think those things can go together. We think that if we pursue godliness, and if we commit ourselves to godliness, it's just going to make life hard and difficult. We have to just keep on denying the pleasures of life. We just have to grit our teeth and bear it. And that's true to an extent. Jesus calls for self-denial. But it doesn't mean that we won't be blessed. This is saying, pursue godliness, and you will be blessed in many ways, including material blessings. And of course, from a spiritual perspective, you get great spiritual riches, eternal, lasting treasure. Look at the end of verse 3. His righteousness endures forever. Then verse 4. Light dawns in the darkness for the upright. He is gracious, merciful, and righteous. This is just admitting here that there are times when things go dark, when the road seems murky, when things up ahead are not clear, bleak. And it's true even for someone who fears God and delights in his commandments. But for the righteous person, the godly person, the God-fearing person, Darkness is not an obstacle. While darkness will be a serious hindrance for most people, for the godly person, darkness is just an opportunity for light to dawn. Even in the darkness, someone who fears God receives light. He keeps going. It doesn't stop him in his tracks. God sort of provides a a beacon. He provides a, a flashlight that propels us forward. Light dawns in the darkness for the upright. And it says he's gracious, merciful, and righteous. And so that light is used then in order to shine forth compassion. Those qualities there, grace, mercy, righteousness, are, are usually used to describe God. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. But here it describes the man who fears the Lord. It, it makes sense though, doesn't it? If you honor the Lord, if you hear the Lord and you, and you delight to, to keep his commandments, you'll start to take on those same characteristics. In other words, you will be godly. You will begin to be Christ-like. You will be compassionate, just like God is compassionate on you. Verse 5, it is well with a man who deals generously and lends, who conducts his affairs with justice. So another quality of the kind of person who fears God is that they not only regard God rightly, 
not only think about God in the right way, they also are concerned for others. They have in mind the well-being of other people. They don't hoard things for themselves. And so even though verse 3 says that wealth and riches are in his house, he doesn't grip onto those riches too tightly. He's got a loose hold on them. He's always ready to share. He deals generously and he lends. He's not focused on how he can spend the money on himself. He's always on the lookout for people who need help. This is the way of wisdom from above. Proverbs 14.31 says, Whoever oppresses a poor man insults his maker. Whoever oppresses a poor man insults his maker, but he who is generous to the needy honors him. Proverbs 19.17, Whoever is generous to the poor lends to the Lord, and he will repay him for his deed. So there's a connection with how you treat others and how you treat God. Generosity is actually a way of honoring God and of worshiping him. That's why we say that our time of giving in the church is is part of our worship. It's not something different. It's all part of our worship toward God. Even the Proverbs 31 woman is described that way. Proverbs 31.20, she opens her hand to the poor and reaches out her hands to the needy. And so a God-fearing, commandment-delighting person will be generous. He or she will recognize God's, God's ginormous generosity to us and will therefore reach out their hand to the needy and will conduct their affairs with justice. So be a good steward of what God has given you. Manage your resources in such a way that you can be generous and that you can be helpful to those in need especially to those that are not believers so that they have the opportunity to hear the gospel. That is their biggest need, isn't it? That is the area in which they are poor. Be willing to share the spiritual riches that God has given you. And you notice the blessing there? It is well with this kind of person. Good things come to those who are generous toward others. They will receive good. God will give them good. In verses 6 to 8, the emphasis there is on stability. Someone who fears God will not be tossed about too easily. They will be steady as she goes, even in times when circumstances would make other people stagger and wobble and teeter. Look at verse 6. For the righteous will never be moved. He will be remembered forever. He is not afraid of bad news. His heart is firm, trusting the Lord, trusting in the Lord. His heart is steady. He will not be afraid until he looks in triumph on his adversaries. This kind of person has their, has their feet planted, they're dug in, shoulder length apart, and nothing is going to move them. The righteous will never be removed never be moved. He will be remembered forever. Their, their steadiness is going to leave an impression. Can you recall anyone who you thought for all intents and purposes should be falling apart, yet remarkably, supernaturally, they are able to hold it together when bad circumstances, bad news comes? I'm still amazed that at the memorial service last Sunday, 
for this man, for Colin and for his daughter. When the wife and the mother, Leanne, uh, was able to get up right here and, and talk in front of all those people. And not only was she able to talk, she was able to share in a very powerful way to a room packed with her husband's um, grieving and almost inconsolable students about her husband's faith, what he was really all about, and why he cared so much for them. We marvel at how she could do that. It was memorable. It will be remembered forever. How could she do it? Verse 7, the God-fearing person, he is not afraid of bad news. His heart is firm, trusting the Lord. Are we afraid of bad news? We don't want bad news to come into our lives. Is bad news difficult? Yes. Is a tragic accident like that life-shattering and heartbreaking and devastating? Of course it is. But the person who has resolved to follow God and to worship God and to delight in his commandments is also able to to muster the courage and to muster the ability to trust God when bad news comes. They can have profound grief and profound pain, yet their heart remains firm. Is your faith in God strong enough to weather the storms of life? It may not be a tragic car accident like the one last week or like others we've had here in the church the last couple of years. It it, it could be calamity. It it might be drought. Could be a fire. Could be hail. Might be a miscarriage. It might be a wayward child. It, It might be a diagnosis. It might be recession. Prepare yourself for those things. They if they haven't happened to you already, they will. Bad news does come, even to the righteous. This doesn't mean we're spared from all that. Resolve now, though, to trust God. He is a good God. He is sovereign. He is trustworthy, eminently trustworthy. Can you praise God in the midst of disaster and even in the face of the enemy, the face of adversaries? When you fear God rightly and obey him gladly, he will show himself to be present. Jesus will show himself to be sufficient. And you will be able to be steady and stable and firm as you trust in the Lord. Verse 9 then summarizes the portrait of someone who fears God. And then verse 10 contrasts that person with the wicked man. First, the man who fears the Lord says there he has distributed freely, he has given to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. Just a summary of what's been said already, right? But here's that generosity again. A God-fearing person is not self-absorbed. He is not stingy. He is not tight-fisted. He's always looking to distribute and to give. He's always looking to help. The Apostle Paul actually quotes this, uh, this sentence in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 9. Just turn there for a minute. 2 Corinthians 9. Paul here in this section, even in chapter 8, he's commending a group of people who gave who gave freely and who gave generously, even though they didn't have a whole lot to give. And then he exhorts the Corinthians to do the same. So look at 2 Corinthians 9 and verse 6. Paul is writing, he says, The point is this, Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. 
But whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. And then here's where he quotes from Psalm 112. As it is written, he has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. Then just down in verse 11, you will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. And the foundation, the foundation for that generosity comes from what Jesus had done, which Paul explains so beautifully in 2 Corinthians 8, verse 9. Just look back there. 2 Corinthians 8, verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor. Why? So that you, by his poverty, might then become rich. Now that's generosity. And the point is, how can we do any less? When we fear God, when we delight in his commandments, and when we've experienced the the magnanimous grace of God, we will then be generous with our material blessings. It can only follow. The end of verse 9 says that his horn is exalted in honor. That's a, a picture of strength and honor. A person who is generous and just and stable and trusts God will be honored. This is the godly life. This is where we should strive to be. We certainly should not want the alternative, right? Verse, verse 10, back in Psalm 112, the wicked man sees it and is angry. He gnashes his teeth and melts away. The desire of the wicked will perish. This is a warning, isn't it? If you reject the fear of the Lord, you will end up bitter. And you will end up with nothing forever. Except for futility. The wicked will melt away. The desire of the wicked will perish. So where does this leave you? You might think, as all of us sometimes do, I think, that it really, it doesn't pay to fear God. And you really can't see how God's commandments are delightful. You look around and it seems like life would be a lot more pleasurable if you don't have to submit to anyone, if you could just do as you please. You look around at the ungodly and they seem like they're having a good time. They don't have any constraints. They're free to do whatever they please. It's just eat, drink, and be merry. It, it sure doesn't look like the description here in verse 10 that they, are, um, that they are gnashing their teeth or that they're angry. And you're right. They may not be doing that now. But it's interesting, isn't it, that Jesus describes them that exact way after the judgment? In Matthew 8, verse 12, he says, The wicked will be thrown into outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The wicked are having their day now, they think. But their view is limited to the here and now. It's a short-term view. So all that pleasure that, you look like, that looks like to you that they're having, all that lack of restraint, do whatever we want, the freedom, 
It's a short-term view. It's only going to last for a while. But later, when the righteous have their day, a day that lasts forever, the wicked will look at that and will gnash their teeth and melt away. So look to this person described here, the one who fears the Lord and the one who greatly delights in his commandments. It is through, through him that you will be blessed. It doesn't say here that we need to be him anywhere, but it's through him that you will be blessed. Make him your aim and your goal. And with that in mind, I remind you that there is only one man who perfectly fits this picture, and that is our Lord Jesus Christ. Just think about it. Go through the verses. You'll see him everywhere in here. His offspring are mighty in the land. That's talking about us. It's talking about the church. We are God's people, God's children through Christ. And we stand out. We shine like stars in the universe, Philippians says. Wealth and riches are in his house. Through Jesus, we the church are blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies. Jesus became poor so that you might become rich, as we read already. And of course, Jesus is not afraid of bad news. He willingly suffered and died on the cross. What seemed to us to be bad news was actually the best news in the world. And through it all, he entrusted himself to God. His heart was steady. He distributed his grace freely. And in all of that, his righteousness endures forever. His horn is exalted in honor. He has overcome his enemy, the devil himself. This is a portrait of Jesus. This is a display of Jesus. But listen, it's through Jesus, through this righteous man, that we are now exalted. And we are enabled, and we are empowered to be able to live this out now, supernaturally. We can live this out ourselves. Praise the Lord. We can reflect this portrait. This is the wisdom that is from above. It all starts with the fear of the Lord. Fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Let us strive to worship God rightly and to obey him gladly and joyfully.